Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Dan McDermott, President of Original Programming at AMC Networks Entertainment Group and Co-President of AMC Studios. And film and TV producer Stacey Share about how they've navigated the challenges of 2020 and their agendas for the year ahead. As president of original programming for AMC Networks Entertainment Group, Dan McDermott is responsible for content creation across US cable nets AMC, BBC America, IFC and Sundance TV, and is also co-president of AMC Studios. He joined the company earlier this year, having previously headed up the scripted partnership between Lionsgate and BBC Studios, and before that was a producer and writer, as well as president of television for DreamWorks and programming chief for Fox. He spoke to Melissa Grego as part of C21's Content London On Demand, the virtual version of our annual international TV conference, and talked about taking on his current job amid a pandemic, his priorities for the coming 18 months, including the expansion of hit franchise The Walking Dead, as well as creating new ones. Um, I'd love to, to start off by talking a little bit about your background and experience, um, especially in international television. Um, you're, you're certainly known for a diverse background in content creation, development and distribution, managing complex creative partnerships and organizations. You've held top positions at Lionsgate, BBC Studios, DreamWorks, Fox, um, and have deep roots, you know, I know in the creative community and as a producer and writer yourself. So I'd love to hear, you know, just, you know, how this this background has prepared you perhaps for this moment in our industry and at AMC Networks, um, you, which, where you arrived in March, right? Yeah. Just in time for, for 2020 to really get rolling, right? Exactly. exactly. As, as I like to say, I've, uh, I've never been to an office and I've never met anybody that I work with in person. So oh, wow. <laughs> one of the stranger uh, onboarding experiences, uh, although I, I think with video conferencing capabilities, you know, I'm capable of being in New York, in the UK, in Los Angeles at any given time. So that's actually been a bit of a silver lining, you know, in terms of getting to know everybody and, and, and becoming a part of the team. But um, I think in direct answer to your question, Melissa, I mean, what I, I've done a little bit of everything over the past 30 years. Uh, I've worked at broadcast networks, television studios. Uh, I've been a, a writer, producer, uh, and overseer of original content myself. But probably the job that I think was most relevant and most enlightening over the last couple of years was um, uh, the job that I had directly before I came to AMC. And that was uh, where I was overseeing a partnership between BBC Studios and Lionsgate Television with the expressed uh, mission identifying IP out of the BBC library and BBC Studios library that is appropriate for reformatting and producing for platforms based in the US. Uh, and an example of that would be The Office, you know, as as uh, sort of we used to always, always used to say, which is a show that started uh, on BBC and then was uh, brought over to, N, you know, to NBC and became wildly successful. And what was great about it was uh, it gave me the opportunity to spend 20, 25% of my time over in the UK. So I, I really my eyes got opened in such a fascinating way to the international production community firstly all, all you know the bbc which is uh the mothership of uk you know content platforms in terms of you know it's uh, what it means to the british public but the you know the library is like a treasure trove of amazing content over the last 30 40 years that we could access and, and along the way i got to meet a lot of international uh producers and really woke up to the fact that there's a whole subset of the business right now that is about identifying content that plays across national boundaries and on a global field. Uh, and it's being driven by the Netflixes and Netflixes and Amazons, etc. But for the terrestrial networks, um, there's amazing opportunity as well. So I, I loved I love that experience. It was really terrific. And uh, and I think it's the future of television, to be honest. That's really interesting. Do you see that more um, in terms of different versions of the formats or, you know, specifically shows themselves in their original form traveling? Both. So what's interesting, what what we've seen, what we're learning by Netflix, for example, which is, I I think, arguably the first global television platform, right, is that people are watching shows from uh, Germany, you know, that that came out of Germany or, you know, Norway in their original language that are subtitled here. You know, the the U.S. market is as interested in watching those shows as they are others. I mean, it's maybe not an uh, 
apples to apples comparison, but there's an overwhelming appetite for those kind of shows. And it's been surprising to people. And I think what that shows us is, you know, it's all about storytelling and good storytelling isn't about a U.S. story or a French story or an Indian story. It's a human story. And when when you te- when you find a story that really speaks to just who we you know our collective humanity it, there 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 are no international boundaries you know so there's a lot going on at the moment you know in terms of obviously the business the pandemic the black lives matter movement so much and you've led through so many different transformational moments in our business and in our world can you put into context what we're navigating right now in terms of you know how this might relate to moments that you've you've led through before? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, well, I'd sort of separate it into two, you know, two sides. There's sort of the, the the business side of what's happening, you know, and what's been happening in our business. And then there's the cultural side of it, you know, and they're they're absolutely interrelated. But from the just the business and the big picture perspective, you know, I think there's there's two types of companies in our in the entertainment business today. There's disruptors and those being disrupted. And, you know, that's been true for a while now. It's not just the last, you know, it's not that's not a streamer centric comment. That's been happening for 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, I started my career at the Fox Network in 1990 when Brandon Tartikoff famously uh, called us a coat hanger network and said we'd never <laughs> succeed, you know, and um, and yet we did and we disrupted the whole broadcast television business. And then HBO, you know, launched the disruption of the cable television business, which drew people away from the broadcast business. And then AMC, for example, in 2007, launched Mad Men in 2008, Breaking Bad and, and then Walking Dead and ha- has been a massive disruptor in the television business. Has, you know, disrupt it has brought viewers from all different platforms and and won awards and and we built this uh, amazing company, you know. And over the last four or five years, we've all been massively disrupted by the streamer companies, right? So, and that's the landscape with which we're navigating. So we at AMC are, are in the process of pivoting and getting back on our toes as a disrupting entity in the business, and we can talk about that later. But you know, that's the that's the big picture. And I think that the, the television is, is in constant evolution. And when Netflix, you know, when I'll use Netflix as an example, when a company like that achieves the stature, you know, and becomes the standard as it's become, you know, and becoming, then it in and of itself, by definition, ceases to be the disruptor and it becomes a candidate for disruption. So we'll see how Netflix evolves over the next 10, 20 years, you know. And then I think there's a there's a real cultural reckoning, social cultural reckoning that's going on that uh, is long overdue in our country. And it's it is cracked wide open the, the reality that to survive and succeed as a storytelling platform, whether you're Netflix or AMC or ABC or CBS, you have to be able to source content from the wonderful diversity of voices we have in our country and appeal to the wonderful diversity of, of viewers and consumers that we have in our country. And I think that's that's something that as much as there's been a lot of lip service paid to it over the last you know couple decades, I think finally now, thank God, people are, you know, talking or they're walking the talk. I know we are, you know, and it's it's critically important to our current business and our future business. That's something I was going to ask you a little later on, but let's dig into that a, a little bit while while we're talking about it. And to your point, there have been efforts, you know, lip service, but also efforts for many years around inclusion, equity, and diversity. Can you put your, your finger on what has really changed this year that you, you see as perhaps a permanent change? in the, you know, the reception to some of these ideas and efforts and the sense of responsibility that people are taking on a, on a company level and on an individual level as far as what everybody can really do and achieve? I think a couple things. I think, I think it's been recognized for the last several years that it's simply good business for starters, who wouldn't want to bring everybody into the tent inside of a company? And then, you know, from from the perspective of uh, make our content appealing and and, uh, and valuable to, to everybody that, you know, that wants to consume it or that's available to consume it. So that's that's number one. I think that's been a growing awareness for a while now. And number two is there's, there's just a sense of urgency. I think that the recent events with George Floyd and all the civic unrest that it prompted had woke a lot of people up and realized that even though we may have been trying and doing our best, we have not been succeeding. And, you know, good isn't good enough. It has to be done and it has to be done now. And it's not something to kick the can on. And so I think I know I can speak for AMC networks. We have taken and this comes from the top down. This comes from Josh and Ed all the way down through everybody, our company. This is the most important initiative uh, that we are 
dealing with right now. And it is an all hands on deck initiative. And it's something that we are dedicated to installing the systems and the practices that are going to be in place for the long term. And they're going to be woven into the policy of the company. So I think that sense of urgency, while unfortunate, and I wish it was unnecessary, has been the necessary sort of final accelerant to, to hopefully get this done. That's good to hear. Well, that's that's a, a great segue, I think, to talk about your content strategy and just sort of an overall um, look at your approach, you know, what, what you're looking for, how you're looking for it, how AMC Plus fits into the scheme of things. I guess that's also part of the other question about, you know, the disruption and the and the evolution of the company. We talk a lot about this since I've gotten here. Multiple times a week, we talk about it in, in the programming team and then with the sales team and all the different constituencies in the company. I think a couple, we, we realized a couple things. First and foremost, television is no longer about appointment television. There is no such thing as appointment television anymore. It's now about engagement television. How do we connect with our audience to consume our shows and then go online and research our shows and join fan clubs and chat rooms and talk about our shows and ultimately uh, through that process span cultural content themselves that come out of that experience and we see that in a lot of shows we saw it in you know the game of thrones and the westworld style shows we see it in in the walking dead there's the sort of throw off of those you know uh, ancillary content that's created out of the walking dead universe is significant and really inspiring so that's number one you know we really want to engage our audience. And then secondly, you know, we have identified sort of three primary components of what makes a great AMC show, right? One is an iconic character or group of characters that break through and become a part of the cultural conversation. The second component is that those characters usher the audience into a world or subculture or immersive, you know, subculture, if you will. And the third component is that through the storytelling, through the, the showrunners and the narrative through Land over the life of the series, that series highlights and says something about the human condition and our collective humanity, good, bad, and otherwise, you know? And, you know, we at AMC talk a lot about the fact that we want to say something about the world we live in. We don't think that's pretentious. You know, we want to be entertaining, of course, but we want to speak to what's going on in the world now, what has gone on in the world. And I think if you look at the shows that have succeeded for us, whether it's The Walking Dead, which has Rick Grimes ushering the audience into a post-pandemic, you know, world and talking about issues of humanity, uh, you know, which really, if you really look at The Walking Dead and, and, and those shows in the universe, it deals with issues of how we maintain our collective humanity and dignity amidst the sort to chaos and constant drama of trying to survive. You know, I, I could say the same thing about Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, uh, Killing Eve, Mad Men. Those are those all, all those shows feature iconic characters, unique subcultures, and and tell really compelling human stories. Let's talk a little bit about your your team as well. I know you've um, had some some recent promotions. You also have Kristen Jones, who specializes in international. Can you talk a little bit about about your your team and how how you're working with your partners, how you're working internally also. You, you mentioned you haven't been in, in person with anybody, but how you're all working together internally, externally, amid everything. So, you know, we're on video calls all day long, you know, every day. So I, I feel like I know these people probably better than if we were in an office on a regular basis. Uh, but um, Kristen, who oversees our international efforts, who spent 10 years working in London, um, has been at AMC now, I think, seven years. It's just a fantastic and encyclopedic resource for content creators and production companies and platforms and, and interesting, you know, new voices emerging all around the world. And what's exciting about that is, as I said at the start, I'm super leaning in on international content, you know, and I think you see it with things like, I mean, we've had Salisbury Poisonings on, which was super successful quiz, Gangs of London, Killing Eve, you know, which we do with Sid Gentle. And we're also looking, you know, we've explored options in Nigeria. We're picking up shows out of Australia. I mean, I think, again, this and this gets back to, and it's sort of, these are all components that weave together. The idea that is a great story is a great human story. It's not a great U.S. story or a great French or U.K. story. And so Kristen and her team are scouring the globe from a virtual perspective at this point, you know, uh, and really committed to that. So that's super exciting. And when we can all get back on planes and fly around the world, I expect them to, uh, to, to continue that. So she's great. And she's been at AMC a long time. Then we have Carrie Gologli and Emma Miller, who are 
are overseeing the the dramatic scripted or, or domestic scripted department. Both of them are wildly smart, super literate, well-read, avid cultural content consumers, and both have been at AMC for a number of years. So what I they have what I like to refer to as like great historical internal knowledge and awareness of what we've done before, but they haven't been here so long that, you know, they're not open to pivoting and evolving because my initiative is really to push us forward. One of the things when I came to the company was talking to everybody about coming to the company was like, look, whatever has gotten us here is not going to get us there. Right. So we have to be able to push into fresh territory and really have the courage of our convictions and take intelligent risks to find the next Mad Men, the next Walking Dead, uh, you know, the next Killing Eve. So you mentioned Games of London. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? I understand that's uh, aired already in the UK. That's going to make its way here. Uh, can you yeah. talk a little bit about the, the show and how that is sort of representative? Okay, so I got I got to the company and a week in, I got a, an email from Kristen that said, you know, take a look at this show and because uh, it's available. And I took a look at it and I watched the first three episodes. And for starters, I, I immediately wanted to consume the other seven episodes. I was obsessed with the show. It, it just has all the components of really compelling television. It's a family drama. It's actually a multi-family drama, about four or five families in and around the London, uh, the, uh, the underworld of, of London who uh, launch into a, a gang war uh, amongst each other when the patriarch, the sort of, you know, uber godfather, if you will, is murdered in the first episode. And what was so compelling about it for me is even though it's a it's a gangster story, it's first and foremost a family story and it's a human story. And I think as you'll see, that's really where the series lives and what the heart of the series is about. And I was and frankly, also Gareth Evans and, you know, his team, like it's it's got so it's got this really emotional core. And then it's got these just amazing action sequences and fight sequences that like that he's known for that it's full on feature quality content for AMC and AMC Plus. And, and uh, we're super excited about it. It's, it's doing really well on AMC Plus uh, and it's going to be on the AMC linear platform in January. So, you know, you mentioned your your initiative really looking forward and what what it's going to take. What got you here isn't what's going to get you there. Right. I like that. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, what you think will get you where you're going and, and where you'd like to see things in the next 18 months or so. So how how have the events of 2020 really shaped how you're changing and evolving deals? I mean, you talked a little bit about, you know, the international aspect of things, but, you know, in, in terms of production, how you're producing, how the pandemic is impacting things, um, what basically you're learning now that is is shaping what you're looking to do in the next year and a half. So the, the pandemic has caused us to shut down a lot of our production, yeah. although we are in production on three shows right now. We're producing Fear the Walking Dead in Austin, uh, The Walking Dead in Atlanta, and uh, a new show uh, Kevin can F himself that is shooting in Boston right now. I'd love to be in production on five or six shows right now. So that's been a little bit difficult. Uh, but hopefully in early 2021, we'll be able to turn that corner and get fully firing again. And as far as the next 18 months, I think my initiatives and plans are probably going to be a little bit slower just because I've been prevented from pushing things into production as quickly as I want to. But, you know, we have a number of things coming up that I'm really excited about. You know, for example, we have acquired the uh, rights to all of the IP in the Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles canon, which is 18 books. You know, we really look at that as, you know, they, by the way, she sold 80 million copies of all those books. So it is quite a, an enormous fan following. And for us, if you look at those books, as I have, as I've read, I've probably read half of them now and, and, and you know, read summaries of the rest of them and I'm, I'm working my way through them all. But it's amazing contest. Like it's the equivalent of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, in that there's a couple dozen characters. The storytelling spans 2000 years. You know, there's amazing stories that take place during the height of the Roman Empire. There's stories that take place in the early 20th century here in the U.S., stories in the 80s and 90s in Paris, uh, Eastern Europe. So we are designing this to be a, uh, a piece of IP that can ultimately spawn multiple series over the next 15, 20 years, you know, on AMC. And similar to that, you know, just to touch on the Walking Dead universe, because I know, you know, we've announced the end of the Walking Dead um, at the end of 2022. So we have 30 more episodes uh, to go. 
we look at the Walking Dead universe as a, a similar sort of environment, a universe that has multiple characters that can uh, spawn their own series. We're working on a new series with Daryl and Carol, which is uh, Norman Reedus and um, Melissa McBride that we're super excited about. That one's a definite. We have others with, you know, that we're developing with other characters that we're really excited about. You know, the Walking Dead, I think as, you know, Josh Sapin said in the, the uh, a Paley conference earlier this week, Walking Dead content is going to be a vital part of our company's, uh, you know, creative ecosystem for the next one or two decades, at least. So that's the objective there. So the end of, you know, the original series is not the end of the franchise by any means. Not at all. I mean, you know, I'm heartbroken to see the end of the original series, you know, but, but we'll have gotten 11 amazing years, you know, from it. And everything has its time to iterate and evolve. And we've got a feature film, you know, franchise that we're setting up with Universal, you know, so we're going to be able to scale up in that world as well. So, you know, we have we have multiple different iterations of Walking Dead content. And I, I would again, I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll reference the MCU only because Kevin Feige is a genius and what he's done with that is just amazing. The idea that we can deliver to our core fans that which they love about Walking Dead content, but do it in a way that isn't repetitive or redundant or feels, uh, you know, derivative in any way. We're all, you know, if we can iterate and evolve and always feature new characters and fan favorites and new stories, etc. That's the objective. And I'm really excited about where we are in the creative, uh, you know, spectrum and how we're how we're launching into that world. So let's talk a little bit about your expansion into animation. We didn't get get into that too much yet, right? So um, what's happening with that? You have Pantheon, you have Ultra City Smiths. Yeah, so Pantheon is um, being created and, and Sherwin by Craig Silverstein, who's uh, massively talented and been in the family for a long time, based loosely on short stories of Ken Liu's. Uh, it's sort of 2D animation, like, I don't know how to explain it, like a, a sort of upgrade from anime, but, you know, not quite as, you know, like the the Simpsons, if you will, you know, in terms of traditional style animation. Um, but the story's fascinating. It, it's a thriller based on the notion of AI and how emerging technology is enabling uh, enabling us and humanity to the, the consciousness of humanity to survive beyond the death of the body and what that means and how how relationships could potentially continue in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a situation like that. And it's a it's a fascinating story of a young girl, a uh, teenage girl who reconnects with her deceased father, who is uh, has been uploaded and is part of a uh, international conspiracy. And um, so very compelling, real sophisticated storytelling and uh we really think that the the, the animated way in which to tell the story. And then Ultra City Smiths, for anybody that knows Steve Conrad, who, you know, created Patriot and State of Grace and wrote, you know, Pursuit of Happiness, honestly, he's one of the most interesting, soulful, intelligent, funny people I've ever met. And he came up with this show that is a story of a patriarch in a New York style city called Ultra City. It's sort of a metaphor and a parallel who goes missing. And the people that end up searching for him. I mean, the story is really soulful and deep. It's like a story about issues of motherhood and connection and how we survive in a cold city and connect to one another and look out for one another's humanity. And yet it's told in stop motion animation, which as a huge Wes Anderson fan, um, when he's done that, like I just, I mean, I particularly love that form. So when I discovered that this was here, when I got here, uh, it immediately rose to the top of the pile for me. So question on animation, is it somewhat pandemic proof? You know, are you able to produce those? Yeah, it's a great question. So that was another uh, attractive component. Pantheon was ordered before I got here and pre-pandemic, so that one uh, wasn't uh, affected materially, but I was definitely leaning into Ultra City Smiths because of the fact that we could produce it. We're, we're in production right now, um, and it's a very contained environment. It's uh, Stupid Buddies is a studio. They do Robot Chicken. They're sort of like, you know, the premier stop-motion animation company in the, in the business, and, uh, and they assured us that they could get it done in time to, to be able to hit Q2 next year. So a couple questions left for you, and I think we're, we're almost out of time, but want to hit upon international programming offerings a little bit, such as uh, La Fortuna. And then a second sort of part to that is how 
international the international marketplace impacts your your green lighting. La Fortuna is a uh, a show that we're doing in partnership with uh, Movie Star in Spain. It's uh, written and directed by Alejandro Amenabar, you know, the uh, Academy Award winning writer director, and um, it's a really cool story that involves uh, a shipwreck that was discovered by an American played by Stanley Tucci and his uh, and his recovery crew and uh, the ultimate lawsuits that ensued with the Spanish government about uh, whose provenance the shipwreck belonged to. So it's another great example of us linking arms with an international company uh, to tell a story that sort of spans both international boundaries. And um, here's the reality of like knowing who we can compete with really well and who we can't. It's hard for AMC to compete with Netflix who can spend eight, 10, $12 million an hour on a gigantic show or Apple who's doing, you know, uh, the foundation or, you know, Amazon is doing uh, uh, Lord of the Rings, etc. So my pitch to similar terrestrial-based domestic platforms around the world, whether it's uh, BBC, TF1, ZDF in Germany, you know, is, look, we're never going to be able to compete with that on our own. But if we link arms and everybody comes in for a certain amount of that, we can scale up and produce a show together, you know, six, seven, eight million dollars an hour that can work for all of us. And it's the sort of, it's the classic rising tide floats all boats you know, uh, uh, notion. And so we've been reaching out and connecting to folks around the world and sourcing content to try to do just that. Final question, just to kind of wrap things up and tie it all together. You spoke about sort of the the core tenets of what you're looking for in AMC networks programming. How do you see it all wrapping up as, as far as the future of AMC and networks original programming? I think more great content for our core audience that they love. I mean, I'll give you my final analogy here, which is there are other platforms out there that are like Costco and, you know, that have just a, a ton of content, right? You know, and, and I can walk into those stores and I can buy a, a lawnmower, a new set of pajamas, and I can buy a steak in the same trip. At AMC, we know we're not going to be Walmart or Costco. We want to be that corner high-end grocer that when you have a dinner party with your, you know, most, your closest loved ones, your friends and family, that you're going to go shop there because you know that what, all, the only thing they have on their shelves are high quality, you know, products. And so, we want to be the premium content supplier. And our motto is we won't rest until we are universally recognized as the best content provider in the entertainment business. Dan McDermott talking to Melissa Grego. Film and television producer Stacey Shear has produced more than two dozen major motion pictures. She's a two-time Academy Award nominee, an Emmy Award nominee, and has a number of critically acclaimed production credits, including Pulp Fiction, Django Unchained, Erin Brockovich, Out of Sight, and Contagion. She's also produced nearly a dozen television series and TV movies. Most recently, she executive produced FX on Hulu period miniseries Mrs. America, as well as the upcoming Aretha Franklin biopic, Respect. She spoke to Michael Pickard about how she's navigated her career how Contagion proved to be so prescient, her thoughts on the present state of the industry, and what she's working on next, including upcoming series The Devil in the White City with Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio. Stacey, thank you so much for joining us for Content London On Demand. Uh, we Sorry we can't meet in London, but it's great to have you be part of the agenda. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. How has the year been for you, first of all, in terms of, I guess, personally, we hope you're safe and well, but in terms of work as well, how, how has 2020 been for you? It's been very surreal. Um, I was filming Respect, the Jennifer Hudson, uh, Aretha Franklin film. We wrapped in New York City. I actually went to France for a couple of days to see some friends because my family was traveling and not home. So I was like, why am I rushing home? I'm halfway to Europe. And then came back and we were in post-production finishing up Mrs. America. And because I produced the film Contagion, I have been wiping down my tray tables for fomites and every surface for, um, you know, for a decade now. And I I, ironically, the last trip I made, I went to Northern California to see Dr. Larry Brilliant, who is one of our infectious disease experts on the film, to talk to him about working on, on something together. And, and we were meeting up with Steven Soderbergh, who was in San Francisco. So the last moment before I didn't leave the house pretty much, pretty regularly, was when I went to go see the Contagion team. I'm, I'm sure you've been speaking about this film ever since it came out in terms of you know the real world possibilities of, of 
of something like that happening. And, and we have seen other examples of it, but I hadn't seen it for a long time. And, and then me and my wife actually watched it on Netflix April this year because it was suddenly in the top 10 on that day. And what's that just been like for you as a, I guess, a very surreal experience? This film you made 10 years ago is now happening. Yeah, I mean, we were filming it 10 years ago. Um, look, we were all very conscious of it. Dr. Lipkin, who actually ended up getting and, and thank goodness recovering from COVID, who's at Columbia Infectious Disease and is, is their chair, was in China. And ironically, he did not get COVID when he was traveling internationally. He got COVID when he came back into the States and was doing an, an interview. But, you know, we all knew that this was a matter of not if, but when. I think what none of us, and obviously we engineered for drama, realistically, we use scientists to model like what would be the most lethal and transmissible. But it's heartbreaking that that scene with Kate Winslet, where she explains what the r naught is and how transmission works, has basically become a primer for people to understand how to try and keep themselves safe. I, I think what we never could have anticipated was the, the just total failure of government public health in the US, you know, and coming from the leadership and the person in, in the White House and their task force and their total disregard for listening to science and scientists. And I think as we look through the whole world, you know, I mean, the first signs were there, let's discredit the World Health Organization, let, you know, and, and all of these things, when people talk about like, you know, there have been these conspiracy theories, we planned it, you know, because of, you know, of it being first a bat, but no, we just looked at science and use that as a model to, you know, Scott Burns and Steven Soderbergh worked very closely with a team of scientists and epidemiologists to both look at public policy and to look at how infectious diseases are started and transmitted. So yes, it was surreal seeing a film that came out nine years ago, number one on iTunes. And it was, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy that the cast came together to make hand-washing PSAs and to talk about transmission and masking and all of those things. And I'm super grateful to the entire team of scientists that are hard at work doing the the health work so Absolutely. you know yes it's it's strange to be a person that everybody calls about things like you know do i still have to wipe yeah do i still have to wipe down my my groceries and you know and and we're all still close friends with um with the team of people we made it with. So, um, you know, I'm like, let me get right back to you on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. See, I mean, it's interesting even now, you know, when I speak to other TV writers and directors about shows they're making now that are about the pandemic or a pandemic in a fictional kind of society. And they're talking about these ideas that they had two or three years ago and how realistic what they thought was fiction has become. It's um, it's quite scary when the, the real world collides with drama. And I guess, you know, have you, are you now back in production on Respect? And what's that process like for you getting back into production? Well, I will say we um, we had wrapped principal photography before everything was shut down. So we were really fortunate. What's been difficult, and it's been challenging, obviously, for the director and the editorial and sound and mixing team not to ever have been able to really have worked in person. Everything's been remote over a system called Evercast. And that, you know, it's funny, we hadn't finished all the episodes of Mrs. America. So um, our composer was already starting to figure out ways to work and we were being able to attend the mix virtually with all kinds of systems um you know in in features the way you test films has changed and people have done virtual testing. But I think the big question is when we're going to be able to go back in the theaters and when people were, are going to feel comfortable because they're shutting down again in Europe. Um, we have some theaters that are open here at 25% capacity. So in order to, you know, attend the de-densification, you know, it's, it's figuring out how to de-densify and get people in safely and masked. And, you know, but I, I miss going to the movies. And I guess that's, that's, one of the, the talking points, I guess, just for the industry at the moment, isn't it? Because we're seeing while the theatres are kind of closed or the distributors aren't releasing the films that we were hoping to see this year, a lot of them are now going to the streaming sites directly. And for someone with such a storied film background, I mean, what do you make of that movement of distribution from the theatres straight into the, the streamers and, and people's homes? I mean, is that a temporary kind of stop that you think will save theatres in the long run? Or do you think we're seeing the end of quite possibly mainstream chain theatres around the world? Is that too dramatic? Uh 
Um, I, I mean, I don't think it's too dramatic. I think it certainly has hastened it. But I, I, I guess I'll give you a two part answer to that. Um, I hope not. And I think that yes, we've created this world where you can see anything at any time, wherever you want on whatever device you want. And, and I have teenagers. So obviously, we have those questions. But there is something magical about sitting in a room with a group of strangers and going on a journey and someone called film and television um, empathy generators and that process that's communal that's like the campfire you know and, and look maybe the industry has to look at itself and say how have we not done a better job to make that process more relevant and a part of a ritual. And, and maybe that's something that we didn't do. And whether it's because of users or whether it's because of whatever, um, you know, Fleetwood Mac, the first concert I ever saw when I was, I think, 10 years old, you know, Stevie Nicks and Mick Fleetwood are as relevant today because of TikTok as they were when I saw them in 1970 and their record sales are huge. So the question is, how do we use new means of reminding people how special cinema is and how important a communal art form it is for new generations, you know, and, and I think that's on all of us to figure that out because Otherwise, where do the next generation of filmmakers come from? Now, some of them are definitely going into television and television is, has become really exciting. And I think one of the things that we get to look at is what is best suited for the format. You know, is it a two hour or two and a half hour or one and a half hour um, best enjoyed? Or now it can be, is it three hours? Is it four hours? Is it five hours? Is it 10 hours? Is it a series? Is it two seasons? You know, no, I, I mean, I think that that's exciting when you can make decisions not by a preordained box. You've obviously been in the business, I think, about 30 years. And I had to write down the list of your top hits because there were so many of them. You know, oh, Pulp so Fiction, sweet. Get Shorty, Man on the Moon, Erin Brockovich, Garden State, which was one of my favourites when I saw it. Oh, Along Came Polly, Contagion, we've discussed, The Hateful Eight, Django Unchained, Quentin there. And you've obviously gone on to work with him several times. How important would you say is that to foster that relationship between... In film, I guess it's the producer and the director. How important is that core partnership? And, and how do you see that maybe mirrored in TV with the showrunner, producer, writer model as well? Or is it very a very different process? I think it depends on the showrunner. You know, um, yes, you could say it's a one-to-one -one ratio of, you know, the showrunner is the auteur, you know, if you, if you buy into the auteur theory. I think the best filmmakers that I've worked with, and I've been really blessed. Like I said, I've gotten to work with Terry Gilliam. I've gotten to work with Oliver Stone. I've worked with Steven Soderbergh three times. I've worked with Quentin three times. The best filmmakers carefully, definitely listen and want people to be honest with them. And the best filmmakers will come to a solution in not the way you pitch them, but in a way that is completely more interesting and better. You know, um, you know. I, I, again, we always joke because the Fisher King was, you know, this quest for the Holy Grail also. And I think in, in the Grail myth, they say, you know, who does the Grail serve? And the answer is like, it doesn't serve it. The Grail serves no one. Well, I think of film like that. And maybe it's because that was such an important film to me. We serve the film. The film doesn't serve anyone's vision. So I think for me, it's always looking at what was the intention when you set out and kind of holding that vision when production problems or overages or limitations or anything, finding solutions, always keeping that the why in mind. Even if the why is just to make somebody laugh, it's you have to remember what the intention was starting out. The power grab by TV has kind of maybe overtaken film somewhat. As you were making these films, I guess it would have been what, 99, 2000, the rise of HBO and Sopranos was coming out. And were you in the film business aware of what was going on in, in that sort of dusty corner Absolutely. where people would usually not want to work? And, and could you see that migration sort of beginning? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, the obviously the big shift was 
when Soderbergh and Richard did Candelabra for HBO because they set out to do it as a film. And also when Fincher started, you know, started doing House of Cards. I think that those were the big, I, I mean, obviously The Sopranos is extraordinary, Breaking Bad, you know, I mean, you could go on and on about the incredible television that we've had all the way through or even things that, you know, Sex and the City, the same fun of any of the things that you could see on cinema. So I think, yes. And we started a television division at Jersey and John Landgraf, the chairman of FX was our fourth partner. And we made Reno 911, which is still getting made (laughs) um, or was until the demise of Quibi. We had just been ordered for a second season. So we started. And I think what was really challenging for us is that we had, I guess at that point, what was a cable sensibility, but we had a network deal. And we got a few shots, but nothing but Reno really stuck. We did a season of a series based on Out of Sight called Karen Cisco, which was really should have been a basic cable show. And I think it's interesting that John and actually our studio heads who became producers, Carl Beverly and Sarah Timberman, had they all had a big hit together on Justified. So I think we were just oftentimes with Jersey, we were ahead of ourselves. You know, sometimes we were completely in sync with the zeitgeist, but sort of the <laughs> idiosyncratic filmmakers that we were interested in. We were, they were about to become the big filmmakers, but it hadn't quite happened. Um, we were always really interested in the new voices business. So I think that to answer your question, world television and cinema is so singular, but somebody like Phoebe Waller-Bridge, she is a different kind of auteur. But in the British film industry or television industry, there seems to be more of a partnership with a producer and and the auteur or like a Michael Cole, you know, having these astonishingly great shows with original voices. So I, I think that kind of leads me into intersectionality and the freshness that comes from having a different point of view. And that is thrilling. So that's a really positive thing, I think. You mentioned Quibi there. I mean, as someone in film and TV now making both, I mean, how do you just see the television landscape sort of trying to put the pandemic to one side but maybe you can't how do you see the landscape at the moment with streamers popping up everywhere quibi closing quite dramatically after what seven months does that mean there's too much content too many platforms or do you think this insatiable appetite for content that we have particularly when we're all at home is is kind of going to continue quibi just wasn't the right place for it to be i mean i think the bar is very high because we are not competing with what comes out this past weekend we are competing with the history of filmed entertainment. So much like how you break through um, in music, the charts could have a brand new song or Fleetwood Mac recharting again. You know, my daughter will watch, you know, she's she's racing to make her way through however many seasons, a hundred it feels like, of Grey's Anatomy so that she can be ready for the new season and has watched all of Friends and our family went through Community, but also watched Money Heist and Unorthodox and obviously Dave and what we do in the shadows and all the great shows that are on FX. But also, you know, you could go through now and see all the seasons of Better Things, which is delightful or Schitt's Creek or and you know, any of the things. Um, It's interesting for three years, three seasons, we made a series that two of the seasons were done in Ireland called Into the Badlands, which was a big martial arts show on AMC. The first season, Basic Cable was still really relevant. And now the show has so many fans because all three seasons are on Netflix. So it it's, I guess the question is, I don't know. I think it's just too early for us to know. Everything is changing, which means there's opportunity as long as you can have a story to tell that matters. And again, I don't mean matters with a capital like I important. I mean, <clears throat> we blew through Emily in Paris because it was so great to imagine what it might be like to be frivolous in Paris, you know, and go somewhere. So it was like going on vacation watching that show. Um, it was the kind of wish fulfillment that you'd have maybe when you saw Roman Holiday. And I'm not comparing the two. I'm just talking about that sort of experience. Yeah, yeah. Well, and 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 I think the thing that that these streamers have shown is that 
people have a hunger for a diversity of content. You know, it's not all seriousness or all superhero. It's both. You can want to watch Moonlight and La La Land and also watch The Mandalorian and you want to watch Hamilton or What the Constitution Means to Me and or the new Borat movie. Or I mean, I think that's, it'll be interesting to see the numbers on that. And as a producer navigating this world, I mean, how are you looking for projects? How are you finding projects and new voices and, and how are you pitching them? You know, where wh- what's your kind of development process between, you know, network, basic cable, premium cable, streamers, international broadcasters? How are you building shows and partners? Well, one thing I'll say that's been great about the changes, though, you know, I think we're all really tired of being on Zoom 24-7. But the great thing about it is you get you're meeting people that normally you never would have met because they live halfway around the world because there's no difference between meeting somebody who lives halfway around the world and meeting somebody that lives, you know, a half a mile away because you're not getting together with them in person. So it's been incredible expanding the people that I'm talking to about work because, you know, I'm talking to people all over the world about projects now. So that is a great change, I think. You're not just waiting for them to come into Los Angeles or or you go on a trip to the UK or, you know, I'm developing a French novel. I'm working with, you know, it, it, it's, I'm working with um, a writer in the UK on a network show, a writer who's based in New York. It's, it's all the same now. So uh, what I will say that I've kind of discovered is how much the theatrical landscape has changed in terms of what people will buy to develop. I, I remember early on, I was submitted a book as um, a television adaptation. And I thought, well, I really think this is a movie. It feels like Wall Street to me. It was a book proposal and it sold for over a million dollars. It's going to be a big book. And an agent said, oh, you know, well, maybe it might be a go at like two very tiny studios, like arts divisions. And I was like, hmm. And even those two places passed and said without an element, either a a movie star or a movie star director with a take on it, it wasn't something that they could risk developing. So that was interesting. And it ended up selling to television. So that's, you know, that's a change. On the other hand, we have been trying to develop Devil in the White City for 10 years and it, knock wood, is going to get made at Hulu as a limited series and it just couldn't be contained in two hours. So no matter how great the screenwriters were, it couldn't be cracked because it's just too much. So I, I think that that's exciting that story dictates Form and you can really aim for the best version of it. I think that's thrilling. But yeah, I, I don't want to see theaters go away. I mean, tell us a bit about Mrs. America, because, you know, when we're all staying at home, that seemed to be perfectly timed to come out and capture audiences together watching this story, this very political story. It's a very political time in the US of equal rights and, you know, conservatism. I mean, tell us a bit about how that project came off and why you think it maybe caught people with the story of Phyllis Schlafly. Well, um, During the 2016 election, um, in the lead up to it, I saw a documentary on uh, PBS and and it was about second wave feminism. And in the middle of it, there was a segment on Phyllis Schlafly who I didn't really know who she was. I knew the name. I didn't really know the difference in her politics between, you know, her and Anita Bryant, because there were a lot of these sort of conservative characters at the time. And they talked about her basically living as a feminist, but coming to power as a spoiler of the Equal Rights Amendment. So um, Davi Waller, who I was a huge fan of and I developed with, but nothing had ever gone forward. I pitched this to her and um, I, I said, you know, I'd always been interested in second wave feminism and considered myself a feminist. And I was looking at what was going on in the Clinton campaign and the intense misogyny that was being directed at her. And and there were these super cuts of how she started out and how she ended up. And you just saw her get attacked and attacked and attacked until she just said nothing. And there were these culture wars, you know, and, and they really went after her when she said, what am I supposed to do? Stay at home and bake cookies. So 
I was really interested in where that came from. And I thought, and, and clearly watching that doc, it came from that time period. And a lot of the um, pieces I'd read about second wave feminism were kind of hagiographies of the second wavers. And they were much more human than that. So what I said was, let's tell the story of the ERA from the point of view of the spoiler. And this was, you know, on the precipice of historically having our first female president. And then we sold it to FX. John loved it. Gina Balian loved it. And then Donald Trump won the election. And we went, wow, okay, this is now going to be the story of how we got here from there. And that followed. And it was an extraordinary journey. Uh, you know, Kate Blanchett always says, you know, it was a surreal experience because every day you'd go to set and you would be dealing with an issue. Roe v. Wade, redistricting, you know, the Supreme Court, all of these things. And every day they were what we were dealing with at, at work and they'd be in the news. And ironically, before things got underway and, and episode two was being written, which is, is the first real introduction of the feminists, and you're dealing with Roe v. Wade and, and abortion rights, someone said, how are people going to be passionate about this? This is settled law. And here we are. So um, I think that one, understanding that women are not a monolith was really interesting and well-timed. I think that these women were all heroes and complicated and really, really cared about being inclusive. And that's messier than having a singular vision driving towards power at any for any price. And I think that we always knew that Phyllis's story for us and and was a story of what happens when you betray your own interests and the interests of of other women, you kind of are relegated to this position of power of upholding, you know, patri the patriarchy. And I mean, I guess following on from that, inclusivity and, and diversity have obviously been key talking points this year in the industry. How do you see the landscape changing over the years you've been involved and what still needs to change to, to make things, I guess, more equal, fair for all? Well, obviously people have to be paid equally. So hopefully that will, that will start to change as well. But I think, look, we made a real concerted effort and said, you know, we always joke with uh, Ryan Fleck, who is Anna Boone's directing partner that he got in as a straight white male on because he's partnered with Anna. But all of the directors were women and two were women of color. The first two episodes and seven and nine were directed by Anna and Ryan and they set the tone for the show. Emma Sante directed episodes three and four. Five and six were directed by Laura de clermont Episode eight was was directed by Janixa Bravo. And just there's so much talent out there when you commit yourself and give somebody a shot, you know, it was amazing to go to the writer's room. And I think there were two men in it. And it was intersectional in gender, gender identification, race, and also age. So um, I think it was, it, it made the show better. And as people dug in, they there were these threads and we were dealing with Me Too issues and we were dealing with representation issues and, and homophobia. All the issues have been on the table. You know, yes, we have made progress, but we have to continue moving forward. And then moving forward, I mean, just you've mentioned, you know, respect hopefully we'll see soon and the devil in the white city, which I believe is with Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio. So, I mean, what more could you want really from those two film talents again coming to TV? What's next for you? What do you hope to uh, work on next? Well, I'm so excited to to be working with Sam Shaw and to be producing with um, with Mr. Scorsese and, and Leo and uh, Jen Davison and Rick Yorn and all, you know, our great team going forward. And, and that'll be a huge amount of fun. There's a bunch of stuff that I'm developing uh, at FX and with FXP and really excited about. And um, hopefully soon we'll be able to talk about and um, some for network, some for streaming, some animated, you know, it's just, it's been a lot of fun, but I'm so excited for people to get to see respect. Jennifer Hudson's just incredible. And um, Aretha Franklin, what else can I say? But it, it's been, um, it's been interesting working, you know, finishing a film in captivity as it were. Stacey Shear talking to Michael Pickard as part of Content London On Demand, the virtual version of our annual international TV conference. The full video version of that interview is available on our site right now to C21 Pro subscribers. There'll be more from the event in the podcast tomorrow, but till then, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. 
My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.